according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We are here this morning for the purpose of growth. You want to grab a little packet of notes there on your way in. There's uh, four sheets of paper, double-sided in each packet. And I'll be describing those contents for you here in a moment. Bob, would you do me a favor? On the back row over there is my Bible. Can you bring that up here, please? <laughs> a little bit easier to preach from if I had actually had a Bible up here. I left it back there when Warren was teaching here Sunday night. I haven't quite got the whole thing memorized yet, so I'll have to teach from it. All right. Turn to John chapter 1 and verse 1. I believe chronologically this to be the earliest book, uh, the earliest verse in the Bible. There are other places that talk about in the beginning, such as Genesis 1.1, which is a beginning. This also is a beginning. In places where you study beginnings, you realize that there are more than one beginning out there. Obviously, we have different beginnings. The beginning of my physical life was in January some 35 years ago. The beginning of my marital life was in May some almost 13 years ago. Building of my, uh, the beginning of my parental life was in July some 12 years ago. We have different beginnings. The beginning of my pastoring was some 8 years ago. We understand there are different beginnings. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Alright, that's one beginning. But in the beginning was the Word... This is something else altogether, and this is where we begin our Life of Christ series. Before we do any of that, though, let's take time for silent prayer to assure that we are filled with the Holy Spirit and prepared to handle spiritual truth. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for the truth of your Word. We're thankful that we have the revealed Word of God to make clear to us the truths that we need to, to learn so we can live on a daily basis. Father, we thank you also that although the Word goes into the infinity of eternity past, although it spans forward into the infinity of eternity future, although it delves into the infinity of your very character and essence, we have finite minds, Father. We couldn't uh, begin to grapple with the infinite truth of what's revealed in your Word. But you've made it possible, Father, by giving each one of us the Holy Spirit that we might know the things freely given to us by you. And so, Father, this morning as we study the infinite truth, we simply ask that distractions might be set aside, that you would guide us into this truth and give us the understanding that we need in order to live our lives for the glory of Jesus Christ. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Verses 1 through 5 of John chapter 1. This will form the bulk of our introduction to the life of Christ, although I will not get to that as much as this week, or as much as next week. So uh, let's take a look at our handout here for the moment, and we'll just kind of get a, 
get an idea where we're going and what we're going to do with this study. The uh, Harmony of the Gospels is provided for you there. You want to get a packet of notes, Susie. The uh, Harmony of the Gospels is provided for you. It's the same one that you have in your uh, through the Bible notebooks, but uh, those may not be as convenient to uh, to have, you know, to be keep bringing with you in a life of uh, Christ study. So we went ahead and reprinted it. It's a four-page Harmony of the Gospels. Uh, I believe I stated on the fourth of those pages uh, where I got this from. The basic harmony was taken from Nelson's complete book of Bible maps and charts, uh, but the revised dates were taken from the chronological aspects of the life of Christ. And so this is really a blending of two different sources uh, based upon my studies and what I feel to be the best uh, chronology so far as it goes. Keep in mind, though, that any chronology you look at, Old Testament, New Testament, whatever chronology you look at, is still a work in progress because we do not have inspired scripture only in, in in very few cases do we have inspired scripture telling us flat out such and such a thing happened in such and such a year and in the probably five times in all of scripture where we have that available even that date is then somewhat speculative because it's it's hinged upon other certain dates for example i mean we know uh daniel was carried away we know um certain things that happened there, but they're based upon, say, the third year of King Jehoiakim. Well, we think, okay, that's real fine. We can fix that with certainty because it's the third year of King Jehoiakim until we stop and ask, well, when did King Jehoiakim start reigning? <laughs> and so then we realize, okay, we got a year or two-year uh, leeway where we're kind of playing with the particular dates. All that is to say is that chronology is estimated... Not, not wild guesswork, it is educated guesswork, but it is all with estimated uh, features. This one you will notice when you look at the crucifixion, um, taking uh, a 33 AD date, Sunday, April 5th, women visiting the tomb, and uh, the issues there. I have gone as early as 30 AD for the crucifixion of Christ, uh, 32 AD, for the crucifixion of Christ, which I think is the much more traditional date, and then even to the spring of 33 A.D., uh, as this table here uh, points out for you as well. In any event, some of that may not be as much of an interest to you. You don't care as long as he died on the cross uh, and was resurrected again for our salvation. <laughs> That's the real issue and the, really the one that I think we can rejoice in the most. Otherwise, uh, what this harmony will do is kind of chart out for you Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and show you in parallel uh, where these uh, Gospels fit together and, and give us a chronology. And we will be bouncing back and forth between the four Gospels uh, in this Life of Christ series. We'll, have, we'll spend plenty of time on each of the four Gospels. Uh, but uh, realize that no one of the four Gospels tells the whole story and that to get the entire package, we need to kind of synthesize and harmonize the various Gospels. We also want to recognize that there are limitations to this study. If the Father truly wanted to present us with a beginning-to-ending chronology, he obviously could have done so. <laughs> and we could have either had a fifth Gospel, or we could have had only one Gospel written, and that would have been it, the final word on the, on the fact. But the fact of the matter is that he gave us four Gospels, and he has a reason for doing so. 
So uh, before we uh, do anything beyond, after I look at these handouts here and show you what we're doing with it, uh, before we go anything actually beyond that and into the text itself, I want to actually start by giving kind of an introduction to the Gospels and uh, give an overview of what we're dealing with when we deal with each one. The last page of your handout, front and back, is a genealogy of Jesus. Um, I apologize for the small type. <laughs> Uh, but to get it all on one shot, on one page, I shrunk it down to seven-point text, and that way we can look at it. Uh, I think it's actually 7.5 on the font. But it, it allowed for the table to be all on one sheet of paper to look at it in one in one stretch. Uh, the backside has some principles, and we're going to look at those here shortly as well. The genealogy uh, in Luke is recorded in chapter 3, verses 23 through 38. The genealogy in Matthew is... Uh, uh, found in Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. And those are the two primary genealogies you look at. Um, and you blend them, synthesize them, put them together to come up with really the fullest genealogy, which you see there in uh, the column labeled fullest genealogy. Um, the one that I've not referenced yet is called the Masoretic Text. Uh, this is the, the genealogies that we have from the Old Testament, at least from Adam to Zerubbabel. And they come essentially out of 1 Chronicles uh, 1 through 3. Uh, genealogies tend to be ignored. We overlook them. They're boring. They're kind of dull to read through. So-and-so begat so-and-so begat so-and-so, and you can kind of get bored with it very quickly. And the names are convoluted and long and hard to pronounce, and, and you get them twisted and mixed up. And uh, they're an area of study that really don't interest a whole lot of believers, to tell you the truth. They're dry, and yet I've got to tell you, they're very important. Um, not for you and I. Um, in, in the church age, God doesn't care if who your parents are, <laughs> grandparents, doesn't care if you're German in background or Dutch or English or whatever you happen to be. It's irrelevant. You're in Christ now, so you're not even a Gentile anymore anyway. Uh, or if you are Jewish in your background, you're not Jewish anymore anyway, because in Christ there is no Jew or Gentile. They're both made into one man that is into Christ. Uh, but in the Old Testament, it made a huge difference. As far as the qualifications for Christ, it's vital that the genealogy has to be maintained and that the record of that genealogy has to be uh, beyond dispute so that the Christ can truly be identified for who he is. So genealogical studies become very important as well for many for those reasons as well. The Levitical priesthood, the probable inheritance of the land of Israel, the uh, Messiahship of Jesus Christ. There are very many things as they relate to Israel where genealogies will become truly important. The final or backside there to that fourth page, um, or that fourth sheet of paper in your handout, some genealogy principles, and then some promises. And this is what I really want to get through this hour, and uh, really all I intend to get through this hour, if we can, uh, if we can get that far. All right. Before I touch that, though, let's talk about Gospels. Four Gospels. Why do we have four Gospels? Uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. In that order, and that is really the best traditional order, although you find in certain manuscripts you find different orders other than that. You will find uh, Matthew, John, Mark, and Luke. In some cases, you'll find Matthew, Luke, uh, Mark, and John in other cases. But the, really, the, the most traditional order on the Gospels is the one that we have of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. In about the 1800s, with the coming in of higher criticism and really other anti-Christian attacks on the Bible, uh, they started to shuffle those orders a bit and tell you or tell people that Mark was the first gospel. That Mark, because it was so short, 
that it was really the first, and that Mark, Matthew and Luke used Mark to write their gospel and uh, the issues there. Uh, you may read some of that if you read different commentaries or introductions to the book and so forth. Um, really, that whole approach came with a very faulty premise. Uh, the scholars of higher criticism, uh, mainly in Germany, but also in England and America in the 1800s, uh, were approaching the scriptures on the basis of the, uh, the Bible really being a compilation of literary documents uh, they denied verbal plenary inspiration of Scripture. They denied that God himself was the author of Scripture. And they basically looked at the, the Bible as if it was simply the work of man, that it was basically uh, the accumulated uh, oral traditions that eventually found written form that were all compiled into, into uh, what we have today as our Bible. And they start with that as their assumption. And by starting with that as their assumption... Logic then tells you, okay, well, Mark is the shortest, and uh, there's almost no material in Mark that's not in Matthew and Luke. There's maybe six verses or a very small amount that's unique to Mark and not found in either gospel. So they start with that, and they say, okay, Mark had to have been written first, and then they, they say that Matthew and Luke used Mark as the basis for, the, for writing their gospels and so forth. But you understand the flaw. The flaw is that they're looking at the Bible as a humanly devised document as far as man compiling what man has written. We understand that the Bible is not a human document, that the Bible is in fact, you want to go ahead and get yourself a packet of notes there as you come in. The Bible is in fact uh, the, the God-breathed Word of God. All Scripture is God-breathed. And if you believe, Second Timothy, that all Scripture is God-breathed, then you realize that God wrote the Bible. And we're, we're clear on that here. So uh, I think the, 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 um, the issues there in the Gospels have been very harmful to scholarship because uh, a lot of conservatives didn't really stand up to the higher criticism and, and stand for, for verbal plenary inspiration of Scripture in a lot of cases. Uh, they will also tell you that Matthew was originally written in Aramaic and then translated into Greek. Uh, that goes back to a very old uh, church father that, that, that uh, attested to that. If indeed there was an Aramaic version of Matthew out there, uh, we've, it's never been found. Uh, here we are 20 centuries later, 21 centuries later, and if Matthew was originally written in Aramaic, it has yet to be discovered by archaeology. Uh, every manuscript of Matthew that we've ever found has been in Greek, and not, not rather in Aramaic. They also will talk about a document called Q, which uh, is supposedly uh, a collection of sayings of Jesus Christ uh, that became the source material. And in this is kind of their circular reasoning. They say, well, Matthew was written originally in Aramaic, but there's material in it that, that wasn't found in, in Mark. And so they kind of created this, they invented a, a hypothetical document, and they called it Q, which were the sayings of Jesus. And uh, again, there's evidence, or there's a, a, a citation in the church fathers that there were other uh, things written about Christ, and uh, including, you know, his sayings and things. And so... The, the, the critics of the 19th century came up with this document calling, they called it Q. And basically they said, the, those are the sayings of Christ that Matthew used to add to the Mark material to write the Gospel of Matthew. All right? And they defined Q as the things that aren't in Mark. <laughs> and so, you see how it's circular? And so then they could say, well, Matthew is really Mark plus Q put together in, in, in this Gospel. Anyway, it's, 
this may all bore you to tears, but the problem is, is that this is the kind of scholarship that's out there that has really, for a lot of times, gone unchallenged. And uh, only recently has it uh, really come under serious scholarly challenge. And the man that, that, that disproved the existence of Q and actually disproved the, uh, uh, the primacy of Mark uh, 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 earned his doctorate from Dallas Seminary. And, and we were the, one of the earliest churches to hear him talk about that. And that was Dr. John Niemla who came here and, and uh, spoke for us on the, the different gospel records and, and how through his studies he was able to prove that there's no such thing as Q <laughs> and that basically uh, that Mark did not precede Matthew, but Matthew, in fact, preceded Mark in the things there. So, what does any of that have to do with our study here? Well, we're going to recognize that uh, we're a Bible church, and we read the Bible for what it says, and the Bible says that all Scripture is God-breathed and profitable and given uh, for our instructions. So, we recognize that God wrote four Gospels, and he wants us to have this message four times over. Now, the Gospels are not clones of one another. And we're just going to chart them out for you here this morning. We start with Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And I will get colorful on you. We will start with Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And then I'll put John over here in red. And these are our four Gospels. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the Synoptic. Gospels. The Greek prefix soon or sune means together. It's like something that's synchronized. Uh, the chronos, the time, is together. So if you've got synchronized dancers, synchronized swimmers, synchronized whatever, their timing is together. And that's soon chroneo or synchronized. This is soon optic, viewed together. They essentially view much of the same material. And they cover from essentially birth to death and resurrection and so forth, they cover much of the same material, much of the same stories, much of the same events, much of the same topics, but just simply from different viewpoints. We'll tackle that here for you in a moment. John, however, is uh, mostly unique. Different scholars have come up with different percentages, but just look at your... Uh, harmony chart here for the moment, going back to uh, that first page of the harmony there, and um, when you look down at the truths about John the Baptist, I mean, you look at the introductory paragraph, pre-incarnation work of Christ, John 1, 1 through 8, it's not found in any of the gospel, okay, whereas genealogies are in Matthew and Luke. But uh, the pre-incarnation work of Christ in John 1, 1 through 18 is unique to John. And then uh, you look at the birth, infancy, adolescence uh, of Jesus and John the Baptist. You've got a lot of Matthew and Luke parallel, but no John at all. You get down to the truths about John the Baptist, the next section down, and look at how much there is unique to John. Events 3 through 9 are all unique to John, not found in Matthew, Mark, or Luke. And um, down in the Galilean ministry. In fact, John, for the most part, doesn't pay a whole lot of attention to the Galilean ministry. And yet, that's the bulk of where Matthew, Mark, and Luke all are. Is there in that Galilean ministry? 
uh, going to Jerusalem for the second Passover, event 12 there in the Galilean ministry, is unique to John. Many of the, uh, of the uh, trips to Jerusalem are unique to John. Uh, the healing of the nobleman's son there, the first event of the Galilean ministry, that's unique to John. As I mentioned, the, the twelfth item in the Galilean ministry, going to Jerusalem for the second Passover, healing the lame man, that's the content of John 5. It's not found in Matthew, Mark, or Luke. Turn over to the second page. Event 39, the uh, peak of the popularity passing there in Galilee, uh, the content of uh, John chapter 6, the I am the bread of life chapter, and the material there, which is really the bulk of chapter 6. Chapter 6 is 71 verses long. That's a long chapter, but it's unique to, uh, to John. Down in uh, uh, the rejection of his brother's advice, event 54 is unique to John. The last Judean and Perean ministry, all of these Jerusalem events, events 1 through 6, including the, the Good Shepherd, all the way, that's all John's material, not found in the Synoptic Gospels. So, I won't go through the rest of this chart, but you can kind of get an idea with respect to that, that John is essentially unique. When you find an event, that is actually contained in all four Gospels, that's remarkable as well, such as the feeding of the 5,000. It's event 36 in the Galilean ministry. That's recorded by all four Gospels. Uh, I believe the baptism is event 1 in uh, the truths about John the Baptist uh, section there, recorded in all four Gospels. Of course, the uh, crucifixion resurrection is recorded in all four Gospels. So... Uh, the issues there. All right, that kind of gives you a sampling. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the synoptic gospels. That may be a term that you come across uh, from time to time. John is mostly unique. It is uh, interesting, though, and a, and a good feature of synoptic gospel study when uh, to examine that, okay, they are basically, they cover basically the same material, but where do they depart? In other words, what material is unique to Matthew? What material is unique to Mark? What material is unique to Luke? The given features of each, and I'll discuss those here shortly. All right, when you think about Matthew, what do we call Matthew? Matthew is the gospel of what? Does anybody know? The king. Outstanding. The gospel of the king. The gospel of the king. Now, can you find other... Of course, you can find other references in Mark and Luke here and there that refer to the kingship of Christ, but primarily you find that this is very emphasized in the Gospel of Matthew. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. The uh, recognition of, of their Messiah being revealed as the king, the son of David, entitled to the Davidic throne. Matthew is clearly the Gospel of Christ the king. Mark is the Gospel of, anybody know? Servant. Well, you've had this before. <laughs> All right. Christ the servant. The gospel of the king, the gospel of the servant. Mark, as we've already mentioned, is very short. But uh, even in its brevity, Mark is very much action-oriented. Uh, very much filled with activity, filled with miracles, filled with things that he did. Uh, one word that jumps out at you is the Greek adverb euthus, which means immediately. And uh, the word immediately happens more in Mark than any other gospel. 
And it gives you the idea of, you know, immediately Jesus went here. Immediately the demon went out. Immediately uh, so-and-so was healed. Immediately they got up and started to serve Jesus. That word immediately keeps happening over and over and over again, which is the mindset of a servant. <laughs> In terms of being told what to do, and immediately he gets it done. The, the kingship aspect is not uh, highlighted as much uh, in Mark as it is in Matthew, for example, as we contrast these. All right, outstanding. How about the Gospel of Luke? Robert, the man, Christ the man. Christ the man. Luke is the only Gentile author of the New Testament. Luke, the beloved physician, you would expect, has a a unique perspective on humanity. There are many issues in the Gospel of Luke that are unique to Luke that pertain to the humanity of Jesus Christ. Uh, that's not to say, of course, that deity is ignored or, or denied, but the emphasis in that Gospel is on his humanity. Uh, many of the terms that are employed are typical, you would expect, of a doctor. There are medical terms that are employed in the Gospel of Luke. Um, there are also many of the, the more human stories that are found in Luke that aren't found in the others. Uh, the Good Samaritan is, a, is an example. The, the, uh, the prodigal, you know, the, the father and son. The, many of the much more human stories are, are found in Luke as opposed to the other Gospels. All right? The Gospel of John. What's that? Ascension? Um, no, that's, I think, that's seen in a lot of the Gospels. It's the Gospel of Christ at, in His deity as God, as the Son of God, or deity. This is the Gospel that begins, in the beginning was the Word. The Word is with God. The Word was God. Of course, we can show the deity of Jesus Christ in the Synoptic Gospels, don't get me wrong, but... In John, the deity is, is so emphasized every single chapter in such a pervasive manner that you can't escape it. I and the Father are one, for example. Um, no man cometh unto the Father but by me. Issues like that. The, the, in the beginning was the Word. So we have deity. Now, as uh, you look at your genealogies, and you can spot it either on the first page of the Harmony chart. Item number three there is the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Which Gospels are it found, is it found in? Or you can look back to the genealogy chart. Again, which Gospels is the genealogy found in? They're found in Matthew and they're found in Luke. Because as we've seen, a king, particularly in, in Israel needs a genealogy. Genealogy is critical for establishing the right of inheritance, for establishing the entitlement to the throne. A king that takes the throne without the correct genealogy is not a rightful king. He is an usurper, or he is uh, a conqueror, one that's t making, establishing his own throne, but he is not... He is not uh, uh, inheriting a, a throne rightfully uh, without the proper genealogical credentials. So a king needs a genealogy. Does a servant need a genealogy? <laughs> there is no need for a servant to have any kind of genealogy. None at all. 
The servant just simply needs to be capable of doing the work. Obviously, in the Gospel of Mark, we find out that Christ is more than capable of doing the work, and he does the work, and he's the faithful servant, and he's the faithful son, and he gets the work done, he goes to the cross, and he accomplishes our redemption. But in the process of doing that, as a servant, he requires no genealogy whatsoever. There again, when we look at Christ the man or Christ the God, which one of those can have a genealogy and which one cannot? I put this on the back of uh, that handout on genealogy, genealogy principles. A king must have a genealogy, a servant needs none. Matthew contains the son of David's legal line to the throne of David, and Mark contains no genealogy at all. Secondly, a man has a genealogy, God does not. Luke contains the son of man's physical line to Adam, and John contains no genealogy at all. So, a man has has one. Deity, of course, has none. Has none, in the sense of God himself being eternal and not being fathered by anyone. Now, let's look at it. So join me in Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. And by the way, there are a whole seminary courses, college courses given over to genealogy studies, <laughs> particularly the genealogy of Jesus Christ. I'm going to give you one session of it here this morning and we'll let it go at that. Matthew chapter 1. The record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah. The son of David and the son of Abraham. And it's going to go on down through verse 17. Now, Matthew, and I also failed to recognize the different audiences here. Matthew is primarily written to a Jewish audience, as you would expect, as uh, emphasizing the king, whereas Luke was written more to a Gentile audience. Uh, but in any event, the record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now this language is very similar to Old Testament language. In fact, if you just glance at Genesis 5 or Genesis 10. Uh, Genesis 10, these are the records of the generations of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Uh, Genesis 5, this is the book of the generations of Adam. It's very much a way to introduce... A oh, sorry. <laughs> Got snagged. It's a way to introduce the genealogy in something that is very... Uh, uh, well uh, known or familiar to an Old Testament audience. In other words, to the Jewish people accustomed to their scriptures. And something that's very vital in terms of uh, recognizing the qualifications of the Messiah. They've been looking for the Messiah um, for, for thousands and thousands of years. And we're going to talk about that here as well by the end of this hour. So it's introduced for us, all right? Now notice he's called the son of David, the son of Abraham. As you look at your chart... On the genealogy of Jesus, um, in the fullest genealogy, in the fullest sense, we have 77 generations. 77 generations between Adam and Jesus. That's the Luke outline, and that's the fullest outline. There's, there's actually quite a, there's a much smaller number in the, uh, on his father's side. I'll break that down for you here as well. Um, 
and that that has caused some people to speculate on different things. But in any event, uh, 77 generations, or if you want to go with the shorter, um, I forget how many get skipped here. There's one, two, just looking at the blanks there in the fullest genealogy column, probably one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven. Eleven blanks there, so 66 uh, generations if you track the Matthew record. But regardless, whether you're looking at 77 generations or 66 generations, there's a whole lot of uh, forefathers there to Jesus Christ. But only two are mentioned in Matthew 1.1, Jesus the Messiah, or Jesus the Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Okay? And this tells us right away what the real issue is in this gene genealogy, and that is establishing his uh, legitimacy to the throne of David. Establishing his legitimacy to the throne of David, that's why son of David is so important, and uh, his position as the uh, source of blessings there under the Abrahamic covenant. As far as the Jewish people are concerned, where did the Jewish people begin? It began with Abraham. And where does the uh, where is the, is the kingdom vested in? It's invested in the son of David, the house of David on the throne of David. And so these two titles uh, say the whole uh, say it all. They say it all. The son of David, son of Abraham. And this is establishing Jesus the Christ as the rightful king, fulfilling the Davidic covenant, fulfilling the Abrahamic covenant. So we recognize that it's totally Jewish, and it is totally oriented to kingship. Totally oriented to kingship. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. Alright? Eleven brothers, plus the sister Dinah. But we don't really care about any of them here at the moment. Don't care about Reuben, Levi, Simeon, Gad. None of those guys makes a, makes a bit of difference here for this ch chapter because we're tracing the genealogy of Christ. We're tracing the, the seed of promise which proceeds through Judah. Judah's the only one that matters as far as the descendants of, of uh, Jacob goes for establishing his credentials as the Christ. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez was the father of Hezron, and Hezron was the father of Ram. Okay, we take it on down. Um, the issues here. Realize what are we doing as we contrast these two genealogies. I'm going to spotlight some things here. Let's just put the uh, Matthew genealogy here, the Luke genealogy here, left and right side, all right? The Matthew genealogy is the son of David, son of Abraham. That's how it's titled. And then we begin with Abraham, and we go forward to Jesus. That's what we've observed so far. Something else we've observed, and I, although I haven't spotlighted it, uh, beginning with verse 3, Judah was the father of Perez. 
Well, let me just back up. Verse 2, Abraham was the father of Isaac. Well, who was the mother? Well, obviously it was Sarah. Oh, we know that. We know that. If we've read the Old Testament, that's pretty clear. Ishmael came through the Hagar, the Egyptian handmaiden. Isaac came through Sarah. It's important in the Old Testament. But it's not stated here. Okay, It's not important in the genealogies. We're just simply tracking father to son, father to son, father to son. We're tracking legal inheritance. The mother does not matter as far as the legal inheritance is concerned. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Who was the mother there? Well, we know it was Rebekah. But again, it doesn't matter. We're just tracking the, the lines from father to son, the line of inheritance. Um, Jacob was the father of Judah. Well, who was the mother? It was Leah. And all of the conflict between Leah and Rachel and the two handmaidens, Zilpah and Bilhah, and, and, you know, that's all very important and that's all very well grounded in the Old Testament and we should know those things, but not in this genealogy. It makes no bit of difference in this genealogy. Realizing, of course, that in the genealogies we're just tracking father to son, we're tracking the rights of inheritance. But when we get to Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah, we have a woman mentioned by Tamar. We have a woman mentioned, Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. So it's an interesting, unique feature in Matthew's genealogy is that we have... Uh, Certain, not every, but certain women are mentioned. And these specific women that are mentioned are quite remarkable. Tamar, who disguised herself as a prostitute and who became impregnated by her own father-in-law. Horrible story. <laughs> and yet, uh, the line of the Christ, the line of the Messiah, proceeds through that. And it goes on. Uh, down through verse 4, Nashon, the father of Salmon. Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahab. She didn't just disguise herself as a prostitute. She was a prostitute. In fact, she ran a uh, house of such there in Jericho. Another Gentile. Tamar was a Gentile. Um, Rahab was a Gentile. Boaz was the father of Oab by Ruth. There's another woman mentioned. Here's our third woman mentioned in this genealogy. Another Gentile. Not just a Gentile, but Moabitess. The Moabitesses that were famous for being so promiscuous and so seductive that they could lead the entire nation of Israel astray. A Moabitess, the product of incest between Lot and his daughter, the Ammonites and the Moabites, the two races there that were so vile in their, in their, uh, in their practices that no Moabite could enter into the assembly uh, of Israel into the tenth generation. And yet she's mentioned here in the genealogy. There's so much grace given uh, in looking at these particular women. Jesse was the father of David the king. David was the father of Solomon. Here's the, uh, not the final, but here's another woman mentioned, Bathsheba, who had been the wife of Uriah. Here's the adulteress who is mentioned. And it goes on down. Solomon, Rehoboam. 
We recognize these are the kings in the Old Testament, kings of the southern kingdom of Judah. Of course, Solomon reigned over the whole kingdom, but then after Solomon's death, Rehoboam uh, only reigned over the southern kingdom of Judah. The kingdom was rift, and the ten northern tribes went under uh, Jeroboam. Rehoboam only reigned over the southern tribes of Judah and Benjamin. Likewise, Abijah, Asa, uh, Jehoshaphat. Uh, this is the line of succession from the kings. Now, some of this might bother some people, when, particularly when it says uh, uh, Abijah was the father of Asa. I believe they were actually brothers rather than father-son, but this is dealing with line of succession. The one followed the other through kingship, and in a very Hebrew way of thinking, there's no problem with saying that uh, with charting this out as father to son because they were in the line of succession, and this is how the kingship proceeded. Uh, Jehoshaphat, Joram, Uzziah. Now in between Joram and Uzziah, if you look at your chart, there are three blank lines. Uh, Luke referenced them. They're very well known in the Old Testament. Um, the uh, King Ahaziah, King Jehoash, and King Amaziah, they're very well known in the Old Testament, but they're not included in, in Matthew's Gospel. And that has opened up all kinds of all kinds of study as well. Why were those three kings not counted in Matthew's reckoning of, of these kings? And you'll see why when we get down to verse 17. And so it goes on down. Now notice, when we get all the way through here, um, verse 11, Josiah became the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. A very significant event is the deportation. When Nebuchadnezzar came in, swept them all off to Babylon, they're in captivity for 70 years before they're allowed to return. After the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah became the father of Shealtiel, Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel and goes on down. This list is not as well known, because these men never became kings. Uh, Judah was never allowed to have uh, uh, another son of David on the throne, uh, there, and there has not been a son of David on the throne since Jeconiah. And you take it all the way down. These names are not known to us, which is why your Masoretic text, the column Masoretic text in your table, ends with Zerubbabel. These names are not known to us in the Old Testament record. Notice it gets down to verse 15, Methan, the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Joseph. Now notice it doesn't say Joseph was the father of Jesus. It says Jacob was the father of Joseph, and here we have the final woman that's mentioned in this genealogy, the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born. And that language changes altogether. We no longer have became the father of, became the father of, was the father of, was the father of. It changes in verse 16 because Joseph was not the father of Jesus. We understand that. We understand that the Holy Spirit came upon her and she conceived that she had no that Jesus in his humanity had no earthly father. Had he had an earthly father, then the sin nature, the sins of the father would have been uh, uh, passed down and he would have entered into this world with a sin nature, same as you and I, and he would not have been qualified to be our sinless substitute. We understand that. We've, we know why the virgin birth was so important. And so it's, uh, verse 16 is phrased very well. 
He was the father of, Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born, who is called the Messiah. Now, verse 17 then also helps us to understand why there are certain skips in uh, Matthew's chart. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. From David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. From the deportation to Babylon to the Messiah, 14 generations. And he's charted these out in, in uh, three different groups of 14 to help his readers learn this list, to help him memorize this list. It makes it much more memorable to, to break it down into three 14 um, name sections, and, and you see that listed in the right-hand column, the, 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 the rightmost column on that chart, you see Abraham 1 down through David 14, and then David is also 1, David has to get counted twice, David is then number 1 in the next group of 14, uh, down through Josiah, and then from Jeconiah to Jesus you have 14 again, and that's how Matthew simply charted it out in order to be learned, in order to be memorized, in order to make it very clear that Jesus is, in fact, the Christ. You realize, of course, that all of these records were maintained in the temple. You recognize that when Jesus Christ was born, that there could be no dispute to his descent from David to his descent from Solomon, to his descent from uh, through this line of kings here, all the way down from uh, Jeconiah, his descent was established. And so the Pharisees could not, and they never do, in the Gospel records, they never do dispute his claim to the descent from David to the Davidic throne. They attacked him of all kinds of other things, they called him a bastard. They said, well, you're an illegitimate child. <laughs> but they could not dispute his lineage to David. And that's beyond dispute. And uh, which is quite remarkable. Of course, today, no one can make such a claim. Uh, the temple of Jerusalem was destroyed by the Romans in 70 AD. Uh, Titus burned it to the ground. There are no, to this day, there are no preserved genealogies and records going back to David. Uh, the Jews today that are blinded in their uh, legalistic pursuit of rabbinic Judaism are looking forward to a coming Christ, but if and when a, an impostor arises, which I believe Antichrist will, he cannot produce his lineage back to David the way that Jesus Christ did in his earthly life. And I find that to be quite remarkable. All right, let's look at the record of Luke. So join me now. The Gospel of Luke... Chapter 1, oh, no, no genealogy there. Chapter 2, oh, no, no genealogy there. Chapter 3. Chapter 3. The genealogy in Luke does not take the primacy that the genealogy of Matthew does. It doesn't just jump right out first thing. But he gets to it in the, in the process. He gets to it um, at the point that he begins his earthly ministry. Luke chapter 3, verse 23. When he began his ministry, Jesus himself was about 30 years of age. And we'll discuss that when we get to this point in the life of Christ. And he was about, or at least, or around. He may have even, in fact, been up to 34. may have even, in fact, been up to 37. 
depending on when, uh, how you do your chronologies and so forth. And the, the Greek term here allows for that, that he was about around at least, about around at least. 30 was considered the uh, acceptable standard for a priestly service. 30 was considered uh, the acceptable standard for a, uh, a, a rabbi. Uh, 30 was, uh, you know, we have this concept that we come of age at 18 here in our culture. <laughs> and all of a sudden, as soon as we turn 18, boy, we can, we can vote. And we're adults, and we can sign legal contracts, and we can go to war, and we can uh, serve in the military, and we can do everything except consume fermented beverages. Basically, we get the rights of everything at 18, and then drinking comes at 21. See, 30. <laughs> you know, would you? Uh, of course, you can get married at 12, but 30 is when you were considered the uh, into your full adult maturity, and they. I think that's kind of an interesting uh, thing to consider, at least as far as a cultural standpoint is concerned. All right? In any event, let's like make some observations on this genealogy. When he began his ministry, Jesus himself was about 30 years of age, being, as was supposed, the son of Joseph, the son of Eli, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi. All right, one thing we notice is first of all that this is starting with Jesus and it is going back, backwards. Instead of going from Abraham forwards to Jesus in time, it is starting with Jesus and it is going backwards in time. Backwards in time. So it's going backwards. And notice also being supposedly the son of Joseph. He's not literally the son of Joseph. And we have a different father mentioned, rather than Jacob, we have a father mentioned by the name of Eli. Okay? So we realize that we're not tracing the same line backwards that in Matthew was being traced forwards. Otherwise, we would have Joseph, the son of Jacob, the son of Matthan, the son of Eleazar, we would have just simply had the Matthew list in reverse. But we are going in reverse, and yet it's through a different line than through the uh, line of Joseph. Okay, And so we recognize very quickly that there are two lines here. <laughs> this is the legal line, which proceeds through Joseph. Realize, of course, you don't have to be the biological offspring of someone to be their legal heir. Obviously, Jesus was not the biological offspring of Joseph, yet he was Joseph's legal heir in the lineage to Christ. But, lest anyone might accuse him of not having a claim to the throne because he wasn't truly David's heir, uh, he does have a physical link to David's throne because this is his physical line. He did have a human parent, and that was Mary. Mary was his biological mother. That is the biological mother of the humanity of Jesus Christ. Or I should say the biological mother of the human body of Jesus Christ. And so we realize that this Eli that's mentioned here was not Joseph's dad, but was rather Mary's dad. 
and that Joseph was the son-in-law. There's no Hebrew word for son-in-law. You just say son of, Eli, son of, and you go on back. Just like I call Charlene mom. <laughs> Even though Charlene didn't physically give birth to me, she's still mom because she's my wife's mom. And what we have in the Gospel of Luke is we have Mary's line going back. And it goes back, and we'll just, we're running out of time here. Um, goes back through these names. And it goes back to David, but you will spot it in David. Rather than going from Solomon to David, it goes through Nathan to David. That's verse 31. The son of Matatha, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed. And, and then we're familiar with the list going back. Okay? Because David to Abraham is pretty well known. Now, and you see that spotted on your chart in the column there labeled fullest genealogy. Um, from, Abraham, from Adam to David it's all the same, but then with David it splits. The legal line goes through Solomon, Rehoboam, all the kings of Judah, and down to Jesus Christ. But the line of his humanity does not proceed through Solomon, actually proceeds through Nathan. Solomon's little brother, Nathan. He was also a Bathsheba baby, uh, another son of David. I think you've got some notes in your Life of David notebook about David's children there, and uh, Nathan being one of them. In any event, but we get to Abraham in verse 34, and we keep going. We keep going. Matthew started with Abraham and went forward to Christ. Luke starts with Jesus and goes backwards, but it doesn't stop with Abraham. It keeps going and going and going, all right? Almost like one of those Energizer bunnies. <laughs> Goes past Abraham. Abraham was the son of, of uh, Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Sarug, the son of Ru. And we just keep going and going and going and going. Because remember, in Matthew, what's emphasized there? Christ the king. The Jewish king. The son of Abraham, the son of David, and that's all Matthew's worked up about. But Luke is presenting humanity. And where does humanity come from? It starts with Adam. And down through verse 38, the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam. Going all the way back to Adam. He is the son of Adam. And Adam himself, the son of God. The son of God. Remarkable how verse 38 doesn't just stop with Adam, but even refers to Adam himself as the Son of God, created in the image and likeness of God. So, these are the differences. He, here he is, the son of Adam, who was himself the Son of God. The genealogy, instead of going forward, goes backwards. Jesus backwards to Adam, and really backwards to God which will be important when we get into the Gospel of John and we introduce this with the deity of Jesus Christ. You know, if, if I'm doing a life of David, it's, it's simple enough to start with his birth. <laughs> you know, maybe I might get into his parents or grandparents, but if you're doing a biology, uh, uh, not a biography of somebody, you start with his birth. You may start with his parents, if it is germane to the early stages of his life. But doing a life of Christ, well, where do you start? Eternity past? Because in the beginning he was. In the beginning was the Word. And so we're going to have to start our life of, of Christ 
series in eternity past. Where are we going to end our Life of Christ series? It never ends. <laughs> eternity future. All right? So we should have a good, uh, a good thing there. All right, well, there's your introduction. We'll come back next week, and we will indeed get into... We'll look at, well, we'll basically follow the outline in the uh, harmony. We'll look at Luke's introduction in 1 through 4. We'll see the, the desire of the Gentile mind to have a chronology. Then we'll uh, get very quickly into John 1, and we'll see eternity past. We'll focus upon the glory of God the Son. And uh, all of that we'll have handled before we're ready for the, the babe and the manger and the, the events that happen there. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for your faithfulness, for your mercy, love, and grace. We rejoice that we have such opportunities and such freedom in this country to assemble together and to receive instruction. Thank you, Father. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.